NHPR's The Exchange podcast is brought to you in part by Granite State College, Keene State College, Plymouth State University, and the University of New Hampshire, your university system. Imagine what you can accomplish here. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Kanoy, and this is The Exchange. Since mid-May, kids over the age of 12 have been able to be vaccinated, but younger children still don't have a vaccine approved for them. And so, as schools, summer camps, and travel are creating more opportunities for kids to be exposed to COVID-19, we've entered a new phase of risk assessment. At the same time as vaccine trials for younger children are underway, public health officials and pediatricians are talking a lot about the importance of vaccinations in children while addressing concerns for parents. So today in The Exchange, we really want to hear your questions about the COVID-19 vaccine in kids, how to keep unvaccinated children safe, and the impacts of the coronavirus itself on children. Our email is exchange at nhpr.org and our phone number is 800-892-6477. We're talking with Dr. Sharon Vupala, pediatric infectious disease specialist and hospitalist in Nashua, and Dr. Marie Elizabeth Ramos, family physician and activist and advisor for Healthcare Voices of New Hampshire. She also oversees the Lighthouse NH, which engages communities of color in public health and wellness. Well, a big welcome to both of you. And Dr. Vupala, let's start with you. Just the news first, because I'm sure a lot of listeners will want to know. The Pfizer vaccine was given emergency approval for ages 12 and older um, about a month ago. What was What's the expected timeline for the vaccine for children under the age of 12? Hi, Laura. First of all, thank you for having me here. I think this is a very timely conversation to have. So in terms of the timeline for when the vaccine will be available for younger children. So currently Pfizer is uh, doing a dose finding study, where, which basically means that they're looking at different three different doses for children less than 12 years of age to ascertain the, uh, the dose where the vaccine will be both uh, efficacious as well as safe. So that process is um, is being is is being played out. I I expect other um, vac- vaccine companies like Moderna and others to also follow suit and perform uh, similar studies. Now, um, this is very typical of childhood vaccination. So typically, we have the vaccine studied extensively in a very large population in the ad- in in the adult age group, and then what happens is that. A study, a study method called immunobridging is then performed where a smaller sample of children are looked at. Initially, it's the older children, then we go to the younger children. And then based on the uh, findings of the immunobridging studies, we're able to extrapolate the safety and the um, effectiveness of a vaccine. So this process of looking first at the adults and then in the children is very typical of vaccine development. And I'm sure you're getting this question, Dr. Vupala, from everybody, but any idea when? I mean, some parents are just, you know, just desperate to get their kids vaccinated so that they can let them live freely. Yeah, so the tentative timeline that we're looking at is uh, possibly late summer or early fall, and it will probably be emergency use authorization um, approval again. Sure. And um, Dr. Ramos, anything to add there? Well, yes, thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, 
as you know, with being a family physician, we take care of uh, the whole family, children and adults, as well as uh, maternity care. And so this is a very timely discussion. And uh, many of my colleagues and my patients in the community are asking similar questions. Uh, one thing that is in, important to, to hear is that now we are able to give the COVID vaccine in conjunction with regular immunizations. So since some families have been um, delayed within their immunization scheduling because of the pandemic, now we can try to consolidate some of that time and um, administer the COVID-19 vaccine in addition to other regular um, immunization schedules. So that's a great opportunity too. So for kids over 12, right, Dr. Ramos, when they come in for an appointment or other vaccinations, you can also give them the COVID vaccine. Exactly. And hopefully come the fall, we'll be able to extend that to our younger age groups as well. Well, I have a lot of questions about this. And to you, Dr. Vupala, first, please, you know, throughout the pandemic, it's been said young children are the least vulnerable. So why is it important for children to get vaccinated as soon as there's a vaccine available for them? Absolutely. That's a great question. I agree that children have not been, are not affected as much as adults in this pandemic. Typically, children are the epicenter of uh, respiratory viral disease, but the, the pediatric population has been spared in some, in, in some aspect. Recently, I heard a uh, fellow pediatrician say that, yes, this virus has spared the children, but the pandemic has not. And I just thought that was so aptly put because that's really what has happened in, in this past year where there has been a significant disruption to the li lives of, of children across the country. So the reason this vaccine is so important, first and foremost, is for that for the pediatric population that is most vulnerable to having severe disease hospitalization and even death from COVID-19. And that is your uh, immunocompromised pediatric population uh, over, over 12 years of age and also those with underlying medical conditions, including obesity. So it's very important that we get this population vaccinated and protected against the serious you know, implications of a COVID infection. In addition to that, it, this vaccine in this age group provides protection to the younger siblings that are not yet eligible for vaccination. Now, there have been about 4 million COVID-19 cases since in children since the start of the pandemic. That's a significant amount. In addition to that, there's been 300 deaths from COVID-19, from COVID and that's one death too many. Among and kids, so Dr. Vukula, huh? Wow. Among yeah. kids only, yes. And since the start of the pandemic, 14% of the pediatric population has made up the total cumulative cases. And so it's very interesting. And um, in, in April, we had a week where a, almost a quarter of the COVID-19 cases were being made up by the pediatric population. So this vaccine is, is important because as more children, uh, excuse me, as more adults get vaccinated, we will see increased rates of disease in children possibly, as well as increased rates of hospitalization. So this is definitely a very important step in combating th this, uh, this virus. Wow, that's kind of chilling, Dr. Vopala. So let's just dig into a little bit more what you said. Um, as more adults get vaccinated, we will see more cases of kids getting COVID-19. Is that because, you know, um, 
they, I mean, obviously because they're not vaccinated, but is it also because the virus mutates and it's looking for unvaccinated hosts? I mean, is that what's going on, Dr. Vopala? Yeah, even without the virus um, developing variants, it's just the fact that the, you know, it's the, the virus also needs to survive. And so, and it cannot do that in the adult population. So we may see more disease in the pediatric population. And we saw this in a week of April, in, in, in April, where there was an uptake of cases where, again, pediatric uh, new, new COVID cases, uh, a quarter of those were in, in the pediatric age group. Again, we have, we have seen a decrease in, in the number of cases in the pediatric age group. But um, if, there were, if there was to be another peak or a spike in cases, I wouldn't be surprised if it was seen in, in children. The other thing that I should mention is this um, clinical disease, which is called multi-system inflammatory syndrome that is seen in children. Now, this is again, a rare event, but when it does happen, it results in a very severe disease, a prolonged hospitalization, and 50% of these children have cardiac involvement or involvement of their heart. So again, um, though it is a rare event, it is also very important to protect our children against this uh, uh, complication from COVID-19. Well, Dr. Ramos, yeah, and I remember hearing from a friend of mine who is actually a pediatrician early in the pandemic, and she had just treated a 17-year-old who had this multi-system inflammatory system. She said the kid had a you know temperature of 104, 105, and you know there was really not much she could do for him. So it was pretty scary, Dr. Ramos. What would you say to those people who are thinking, well, kids largely have been spared, you know, from this virus, so why bother getting them vaccinated? Yeah, that's a good insight. You know, we have a couple of things that we're working on um, as a community. And so the first thing is that while kids don't tend to have severe reactions or consequences to the illness, that doesn't mean they can't. And are we willing to flip that coin or roll that dice for our kids when we have something that is safe and that has been shown to be very effective? That's a question that our, our parents have to make a decision on. The other thing is, again, um, how are we protecting our neighbors? So unfortunately, we do have children and adults who are not able to be vaccinated in our immunocompromised and how are we creating an environment that is safe for them? And as we're thinking about going back into the school year, creating an environment that's safe for them so that our students and our learners who may be immunocompromised and can't get vaccinated can feel um, reassured that they can have the best learning environment possible, physically um, as well as educational. And then the last thing I would say is we're not out of the weeds yet. And although the states, many states have released all of the precautions um, as far as mask mandates, et cetera, we are still having quite a number of cases all across the United States. And New Hampshire is not immune to that. Hospitalizations, um, yes, have been improved, but that doesn't mean that the virus is gone. And so we still need to be very diligent in um, creating herd immunity, which means that um, at least 70 to 80 percent of our population, excuse me, it's more than 85 percent, right, Dr. Rizpahula, of our population is vaccinated yeah. so that we can prevent a re-flourishing of a variant or the virus. This reminds me a lot, actually, 
of the H1N1 um, cycle with, with the swine flu and how it just crossed, you know, very quickly um, and, and severely within populations. And the more we were able to get vaccinated, the, the less likely um, people could, um, could be exposed. As we're starting to open up our borders, we're starting to travel again. All of these things need to be taken into consideration. Our, our environments and our bubbles are exponentially greater. Right. Well, I want to remind our listeners that we're talking about children, coronavirus, and the COVID-19 vaccine today, and we'd really like to get your questions in. Send them in by email to exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. Use Facebook if you'd like, or give us a call, 800-892-6477. And to that point that Dr. Ramos just made about, you know, many of us are increasing our bubbles, and what does that mean for unvaccinated children? I have an email here from Matt, and it's long, but I want to read the whole thing because I think it illustrates what a lot of folks are up against. Matt says, my family is facing a tough situation this summer. We have two kids age eight and 10. My wife and I got vaccinated in April and we've taken every possible precaution to keep everyone safe since last year. We kept the kids in remote school as long as possible, limited our activities, skipped holidays with my family right here in New Hampshire. Matt says, we traditionally visit my in-laws in Pennsylvania for a month or so each year to let the kids and grandparents spend quality time together. The problem is my adult brother-in-law, who lives with them full-time, refuses to get vaccinated. We're extremely hesitant to visit on account of this. It feels like the situation has become more dangerous for those who aren't vaccinated yet, with mask mandates now a thing of the past and precautions being thrown to the wind as people rush back to wanting things to be normal again. My wife and I made some extremely hard decisions over the past year to keep our family safe, many of which caused friction within family. Spending a month in the same house with an unvaccinated family member while trying to enjoy a, quote, regular summer seems like a giant risk, especially when we're so close to a vaccine for our kids. Matt asks, are we crazy here? What do your experts think? Matt, I'm so glad you wrote because I think a lot of people are in that situation. And Dr. Ramos, to you first, what do you think about this? Thank you so much. I've had similar conversations, and my my own family has had to make um, those kind of decisions. And so, thank you for for um, being inquisitive and for looking into this deeply. This is this is a hard thing. Um, we've this last year has caused um, many people to have to consider what are they willing to risk versus benefits of situations. We went through this conversation with going back to school, like Matt said, do we stay remote or do we go in person? Um, we had the same discussion as far as work environment. And so now as we're in this transition phase, um, how do we respond to the ebbs and flows of emerging out of a pandemic? And this is, this is what I share with my patients. Um, although we are much in a much better place than where we were this time last year, we are still emerging from a historically unprecedented pandemic. And so I would, you know, I, I counsel my patients to, to have conversations as they feel comfortable with their family. But first and foremost, you need to be able to sleep at night. Um, we can talk about what are some of the risks and the CDC has released information and some guidance about 
what are what are some risks um, with people who are completely vaccinated versus not when you're indoors versus outdoors, which can help um, to help our our uh, decision making a little bit more. Um, you know, but that's tough. I've had families that say, you know, it's time is limited. We're, you know, adults are, are vaccinated. Our kids may or may not um, have a, a severe effect if they do get COVID. Um, then, you know, we'll take our chances. I've had families that say, well, if the unvaccinated family will quarantine and take precautions, and then we can extend and open our bubble. Um, some families say, you know, I'd rather wait for all of us to be vaccinated in, the, in our household and then feel more comfortable. So the, the permutations are, are endless, but communication, open-mindedness, and grace amongst everything else is uh, still needs to be in the forefront. Oh, that's interesting. So, Dr. Ramos, if the brother-in-law um, were willing to take a test and, you know, quarantine, then it might be okay for Matt and his family to go down. Um, uh, but otherwise, it sounds like it's not a good idea. Is that what you're saying? Well, the CDC does, suggest, does say that, you know, if we have um, people who are all fully vaccinated, then you can do things regularly without taking precautions, particularly putting masks and keeping right. physically distant. And so there's that that elephant is in the room, the quintessential elephant. Um, so, you know, the, the question is, is how can we balance um, our um, levels of comfort um, if they are different? And how can we come together in mass case as a family to create an experience that is still valuable, but still have everyone still comfortable? And so, yes, if, um, you know, if, I would I would say that if if um, the unvaccinated family would would be willing to quarantine and to kind of shrink their their personal their personal space and bubble for a two week period and if they uh, have a negative test or they have no symptoms depending on the comfort of of Matt's family for instance then that may give Matt and his family more comfort in making a decision to to spend that quality time that they. I'm probably looking forward to, um, wow. but like yeah. I said, positions that and the the possibilities are endless. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you for writing, and we have a similar email from Emma in Barrington that I'll throw to you, Doctor Vopula. Yeah, uh, did you want to jump in on Barrington. Matt? Because I also have a similar email yeah. from Emma. Emma, but go ahead, go yeah. ahead, Doctor Vopula. Yes, Lars. I just wanted to add a couple of a uh, couple of points. I agree with uh, Dr. Ramos that this is an incredibly nuanced conversation that's specific and individual to each family. So one thing I want to recommend, a couple of things I want to recommend before the trip to Pennsylvania is one, to look at the level of transmission in the state of Pennsylvania as well as in the in the regional location that they're going to. And that kind of helps you um, stratify the risk of the overall transmission there. So for example, in New Hampshire, we have a moderate level of um, transmission, but there are some counties that are going to minimal uh, rates of community transmission. So again, that can be reassuring to the family in terms of the safety of even going on the trip. Secondly, uh, it's important to assess the um, risk of transmission in terms of or not the risk of transmission, but the severity of the disease for the eight and the 10 year old. If they're healthy, not immunocompromised, there are no other underlying medical conditions, that becomes again, a reassuring thing. If the 
kids have any of those um, conditions, a larger measure of precaution needs to be taken. Now, when the, I don't know if the brother-in-law is open to wearing a mask, but that again protects the unvaccinated children from possible transmission. Now, we know that outdoor, and then also there's a difference in transmission between outdoors and indoors. So again, if it's possible, whenever the kids are interacting with the unvaccinated brother-in-law, if the brother-in-law can wear a mask and the kids can social distance, again, that becomes a safer, um, a safer method of preventing transmission. And when they're, and maybe just increasing outdoor activities with the brother-in-law and, and that we know the risk of outdoor transmission is incredibly low. So that might also um, be an option where avoiding the indoor activities with the unvaccinated family member, but optimizing the outdoor activities that can be done. Well, and here's another email with a similar situation, but slightly different as well. Emma in Barrington writes, what are their recommendations or thoughts about traveling internationally this summer with unvaccinated children? My husband and I are considering taking our 18 month old to the Czech Republic to meet his family for the first time. We're also two of his siblings are getting married. Both he and I are fully vaccinated, but our child can't be yet. We are agonizing over this decision as we are worried about the risks to her health, but we also feel a strong desire to see his family be there for these big family milestones and for his family to meet our daughter. From what we hear in the Czech Republic, not many people are vaccinated yet, but cases are going down and as a result, COVID restrictions are loosening. We have been told, Emma says, to expect that people will likely not wear masks at the indoor weddings, even if they're unvaccinated. While we are protected by our vaccines, this is very concerning for our daughter's sake. Yet we also hear that typically COVID tends to not be that severe in children, but yet there have been some rare deaths of children due to COVID. We need to decide soon. Help, Emma says. Wow, Emma, that is a lot. Uh, Dr. Vopola, do you want to weigh in there? Sure. It's again similar to the to the approach in answering the previous question, where um, first we need to look at the level of community transmission in the country you're going to go over the rules of entry into the country, whether they need a um, a COVID nineteen test and what quarantine procedure is there. In terms of the um, unvaccinated child being in a wedding where people will be unmasked, that's really a tough one because at the age of 18, you cannot mask a child. So again, um, I don't know if it's possible to socially distance at this wedding. You know, usually that, that's well, very tough wedding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's another option. Um, limiting the time you're there at wedding, uh, maybe just being there for the ceremony and not the reception. Again, really tough things. But yes, especially when you're overseas, the, uh, you know, the keeping your kids healthy is, is incredibly important. Yeah, so you can't really mask an 18 month old. That's what you said, Dr. Vopala, right? So yes, yeah, it's not um, recommended. Yeah, and I'm having a hard time imagining how you would socially distance at a wedding, yeah. but um, maybe if it was outdoors, but it sounds like it's indoors. Yeah. Um, gosh, Emma, I hope that's a little bit helpful and um, good luck with that decision. Um, I really appreciate you writing yeah, I, in. I would, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Ramos. I would add one, one more thing to that. Um, international travel adds just another layer of complexity um, because what happens if you do get sick and where do you go? And so that's another thing I would suggest for uh, our listeners to, uh, to take into consideration. If 
if the child does get ill, then what are the resources and access that they have um, on site in, in the foreign, in the other country? Um, I have patients that travel frequently uh, out of the country and have sometimes um, gotten into precarious situations because the healthcare systems may not be as robust um, and available as, um, as here in the States. And so one, that's just another thing to consider uh, in the decision-making process. Congratulations to your family and good luck on this decision. Wow, Emma, thank you for writing. And we're going to take a very quick station break. And then we'll talk about some of the concerns that parents have about the impact of the vaccine on their younger kids. Also, until kids are vaccinated, how to manage social situations this summer, like the ones that we've been hearing about from our listeners. Join us with your questions and comments on this topic. Again, it's 800-892-6477. Or send your experiences in by email to exchange at nhpr.org. More in a moment. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today, kids and COVID-19. We're asking what parents need to know about COVID vaccines for children aged 12 to 17, which have been approved, and for younger kids who aren't eligible yet, what they can safely do in the meantime. Let's get your questions in too. Our email is exchange at nhpr.org or give us a call at 800-892-6477. We're talking with Dr. Sharon Vopola, pediatric infectious disease specialist and hospitalist in Nashua, and Dr. Marie Elizabeth Ramos, family physician and activist and advisor for Healthcare Voices of New Hampshire. Again, our number is 800-892-6477. So here's an email from Stephanie. And uh, Dr. Vrupal, I'm going to throw this to you because this raises something that you mentioned before. Stephanie says, I'm very interested in the question that's being asked, which is how do we protect our children from COVID-19? But many parents, Stephanie says, are asking a different question. What are the short-term and long-term impacts on social, emotional development and mental health in children as a result of keeping them safe from COVID-19. Stephanie, thank you for writing. And uh, Dr. Vopola, what do you think? You touched on this earlier. You said the virus has spared kids, but the pandemic has not. So go ahead. Yeah, such a great question. And the short answer is that this has not been studied at this point of the pandemic, as far as I know. So. It's really unknown what the short and the long-term effects are. We know that mental health is a separate pandemic, even among the um, among teens and young adults. So we certainly know that we already have a increasing problem at baseline and the effect of this pandemic is something that will need to be studied. It's very interesting because developmentally, teenagers and young adults are at a stage where um, peer approval, peer relations are so important. And um, also, they're also at a developmental stage where that sense of community among their peers is so important. So I anticipate that this definitely will be studied and um, it will be interesting to see what the ramifications are of the, uh, of at one point, very stringent and appropriate restrictions and then uh, how that has played out played 
Yeah, you know, Great I'm question, really, though. yeah, Thank I'm you. really glad she wrote, Stephanie. And Dr. Ramos, I ask you too, you know, this is a sentiment that I have heard among parents. Well, you know, they, you know, they worry that their kid might get COVID, but they are definitely worried about their kids, you know, social and emotional health. And they're trying to weigh that out. And, you know, some parents are saying, I'm taking the COVID risk because I can see that my kid is, is depressed or is lethargic or hasn't left the house in three days. So how are you talking to your patients, Dr. Ramos, about that balance, especially for the younger kids who can't be vaccinated yet? Yeah, this is a major, major concern. And um, quite frankly, the the downstream consequences of this year that has been missed, um, some some studies from the educational realm are thinking are saying that this could be, you know, two to three year um, delay in in progress as it relates to social emotional development, e emotional IQ or EQ we call it, um, and recognizing um, that our schools play a major role in helping our kids understand um, understand themselves as it relates to community and what that means. And so our schools are being faced with a tremendous um, pressure at this point on how to effectively and, um, and uh, in a developmentally appropriate way address the trauma that our kids have uh, and families have and have experienced and make sense of that while also creating an individualized environment that can still assess where our kids are academically. Um, I have recommended to my parents and to community members that this is a time that our families and our support networks need to be advocates for our kids. Um, every school district has been different uh, as far as how they approach the pandemic and the resources provided for their kids. And so for that reason, when we come back into the school year, um, it is going to be very important to make sure that on the school district side that they are adequately um, communicating what expectations are. Um, we are seeing now as well that um, methods such as academic tracking, um, where we, uh, where kids that uh, test at a certain level of proficiency go into more accelerated um, levels without an ability to, to jump or to, to move, this could be detrimental for children that are still adjusting and recuperating from this immense social, emotional trauma um, uh, uh, during the pandemic. And so how are we as communities going to uh, set our students, our learners up for success? Very important question to, to ask. And all the more reason that the people that can get vaccinated do get vaccinated so we can get our kids back in school. The other thing I will say is that in Massachusetts, we see just across the border that our more concentrated um, urban environments that did have in-person schooling um, with the proper precautions, that their rates of transmission were actually very low within those concentrated areas. And so that gives me a little bit more um, um, a, a little bit more solace in seeing that if we can be safe um, and take the necessary precautions for those who can be vaccinated, we can still have our kids in school and connected, which is so vital to their development. Well, looking ahead to the summer for now, Dr. Ramos, you know, um, 
and I hear you about the schools and boy, we've had a lot of conversations about that. But given the trauma that you and Dr. Bobel have mentioned, you know, kids again, forced to be apart uh, and all this stuff, how would you advise families who are trying to sort that out for their younger kids who can't be vaccinated this summer? You know, the kids are desperate for sleepovers. They're desperate to go to the pool with their friends or on a rainy day, go inside, you know, and I don't know, play games or watch TV or whatever. I mean, how are you Mm -hmm. helping families sort that more immediate concern out? That's a great question. So um, on the Lighthouse New Hampshire uh, Facebook page, uh, we just had a uh, Facebook Live on the 5th of this month, and we had local educators across the state talk specifically about this. How do we um, maximize this opportunity in the summer um, for our kids? And by and large, our expert educators um, recommended to just get kids out and active. Um, let kids um, um, create community. And now that the weather is better, we have more opportunities to do that in a a safe environment. Um, So again, what's most important at this point, kids can't learn, no one can learn if we're not in in an emotionally safe space. And so let's focus on getting reconnected. Um, As far as getting inside of the homes and having those discussions, again, it's a, it's a weighing up the risks and benefits and looking at what the CDC recommends and what, um, what your trusted medical community and your trusted family doctor um, recommends as well. And so, again, you'll still need to weigh those options. Um, having transparent discussions with um, households or families about where they are as yeah. far as, and other parents, correct about their vaccination status, about, you know, how widely they're opening up that bubble and and so forth. Stephanie, I'm really glad you wrote because we did need to talk more about the social emotional impacts of this, um, as well as the the safety risks and so forth. Again, you can join us with an email. It's exchange at nhpr.org or give us a call 800-892-6477. I want to ask both of you about some concerns that parents might have about the vaccine for kids under 12 when it comes. And Dr. Vopola told us earlier that it is coming um, by the end of the summer or early fall. Dr. Vopola, to you first, you know, people are sometimes nervous about the impact of a vaccine on a child's body as it is still developing, especially these vaccines, which, you know, people feel like they came so quickly. What are you telling parents who might have those concerns um, about how fast this vaccine was developed and whether that makes it safe for children? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a question and the most conscientious parents are the ones that are most, um, you know, just they want to do the right thing and make the right decision for their kids. So certainly, you know, there was a record speed in this vaccine development, both for adults and children. And um, so and so one more thing I want to reassure people is that this is very typical of development of childhood vaccinations where the adult population is first looked at and then the children. But basically the speed of the vaccine development has to do with um, scientific and technological advancements that allowed us to very quickly sequence the um, genetic makeup of this virus once when it was initially identified in China. So that was able to be done very quickly. In addition to that luxury of um, not the luxury, but we had the ability to 
look at or study very quickly vaccine safety and effectiveness as well as study the infection itself because we because it occurred in the middle of a raging pandemic so there's a lot of time that is taken when you do a, a clinical trial in in terms of enrolling participants so that was you know basically that prolonged process was not you know, uh, needed in, in, in this current outbreak. So these two things really sped up the process of um, approval. Now, the whole concept of emergency authorization has to do with the FDA's ability to respond to a public health emergency, whether it's a natural outbreak, bioterrorism, et cetera. So again, when the term emergency use authorization should not, um, does not mean that the scrutiny in terms of asserting the safety and the efficacy was not overlooked. And uh, when Pfizer did their vaccine trial uh, for children 12 to 15 years of age, they actually looked at outcomes and uh, long-term complications or any issues with safeties up to two months out from the vaccine um, administration. So again, the, you know, yes, this vaccine was approved quickly for adults and children, but the safety has not been compromised. Does that have to do with um, the, the mRNA technology, even though these were approved quickly for emergency use, as you said, Dr. Vopala, the mRNA approach, if I could call it that, has been used elsewhere, so it's kind of tested and, and on the shelf and ready to go, is that is that right? Yeah, more than the the mRNA technology, it's just the you know the ability to study the va the vaccine quickly in in a population because we had so many study participants that were readily available to us and the rapid uh, ability to rapidly um, sequence the the genome of of the virus and understand that. I see. And Dr. Ramos, too, you know, some parents are wondering about the impact of the vaccine on children down the road, you know, um, five years, 10 years from now. How much do we know about that, uh, Dr. Ramos? Well, obviously, we're, we're still in the thick of things. But what, I, what we do know is that vaccines are safe. Um, and the rigorous process that we have, um, particularly in the United States, when it comes to developing vaccines, it um, beholden us to a, a safe product, especially for our most vulnerable lives, um, that of our children. Uh, and so I would, I, I would reassure um, our listeners that, um, particularly for um, for administration for children and pediatric populations, um, if we have gone through the rigors, which Dr. Papua um, discussed the rigors required in order to get this passed and approved, then um, we should feel um, we should feel comfortable comfortable in, in allowing our kids to get vaccinated. Remember, vaccines save lives. Without vaccines, lives are affected. And so from a larger standpoint, um, we want to make sure that this this virus um, gets you know, we call it, I, I like to think of it smothered, right? Smothered and, and cocooned with this protective effect. Um, the sooner we can get vaccinated um, and the, those who can, the more likely that will happen. Well, and that's an important point that's, you know, we're talking about. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Vapala. I just wanted to add one quick thing. So historically, 
vaccines have not shown to have long-term side effects. And what I mean to say is um, a vaccine that's administered to a 12-year-old is very unlikely to cause problems when they're 21 or 22. So historically, we don't see, we have not seen any um, long-term side effects of vaccine administration. When side effects do occur, they usually occur um, up to six weeks after vaccine administration. So again, as I mentioned, Pfizer looked at um, outcomes and safety up to two months after vaccine administration. So again, that should be reassuring to parents that we don't anticipate to see any long-term effects of this vaccine. In addition to that, we have to keep in mind that millions of people have now received the, this vaccine. And um, as early as, um, you know, the, the, the beginning of 2021. So we do have that, uh, those long, those outcomes that have been monitored, and there has been no safety signal that's been picked up in terms of uh, vaccine side effects months after the vaccine has been administered. Well, coming up, a lot more questions for both of you about just some of the issues that you're hearing from parents. Also, we'll have some more practical questions about, you know, plans for the summer, schools opening up at the end of the year, and we'll take more questions from our listeners. I've got a bunch more emails I want to share. Our address is exchange at nhpr.org, and our phone number is 800-892-6477. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Tomorrow on The Exchange, our Sky Crew joins us with the latest in astronomy news, including Thursday's partial solar eclipse. Join us for that conversation tomorrow morning, live at 9. Today, what you need to know about children, coronavirus, and the COVID-19 vaccine for kids. Exchange listeners, it's your chance to get your questions in about this. Send them in by email to exchange at nhpr.org or give us a call 800 892 6477. Our guests are Dr. Sharon Vupala and Dr. Marie Elizabeth Ramos. And both of you, right back to our listeners. And um, Elizabeth asks, what is known about why younger children are less affected by COVID? That's a great question, Elizabeth. Dr. Vupala, can you shed some light on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And the jury's still out on that. We don't exactly know why that children are not as affected. Um, again, as I mentioned, typically children are the epicenters of any respiratory viral inf infection. Uh, Marie mentioned H1N1, and we saw that play out with uh, influenza, and we see that play out each year with influenza, but it's, um, that has not happened with this, um, with this pandemic. Additionally, children, studies have found, are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, and um, so that is, again, an interesting thing. And we also know that when transmission does occur, the transmission is most likely to occur from adults to children and not children to adults. So a lot of interesting questions that need to be answered. But at this point, we don't know exactly why children are not affected as much. So is it possible, Dr. Vupala, that as variants develop around the world and mm -hmm. maybe in this country, yeah. a variant could develop that would be more harmful to kids? That's more aggressive in the pediatric population. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we've heard about all these variants yeah. developing. Yeah. Sure, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I think when we're having a little technical develop, trouble. They're more transmittable. Can you hear me? 
Yeah. Sorry, Dr. Vopel. I think we're having just a little technical trouble. Go ahead, please. No problem. So yes, uh, we we find that when variants do develop, they're more transmittable and um, but not necessarily more severe, especially to the pediatric population. So that's where okay. we are with yes. That's good to hear. So some of these new variants are more transmissible, but at this point don't seem more harmful to the pediatric population. Elizabeth, thank you for writing. Io writes, is there any information you can share about what families who have children in the home who cannot be vaccinated should or should not do? And then Io also wants to know when the vaccine is approved for younger age groups, where can they go to receive their COVID vaccine? Uh, Great questions, Io. Dr. Ramos, can you jump in? Sure, sure. Um, that is a, that's a tough question. So for my patients that have, that are in that situation, um, we talk, we talk very closely with their specialists that take care of their, you know, um, compromised state to make sure that we make the best decision um, that is best for your family. So again, this is very, it's going to be very individualized, um, particularly um, as we start to people start to, again, expand their bubbles. So my best suggestion in this particular um, case would be to discuss very closely with your family doctor and with your specialist who manages um, your, your child's immunocompromised state. And we talked earlier, Dr. Ramos, you know, with those examples that uh, Emma and Matt wrote in, but is there a, a place where people can find information about, you know, just sort of, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. We advise you not do this, not do this, not do this. You know, again, in this situation that a lot of families find themselves where parents and older siblings are vaccinated and younger kids are not. Is there sort of a a go-to place, uh, Dr. Ramos? Definitely. Uh, so cdc.gov is, um, has a whole COVID-19 education center for patients. Um, and New Hampshire has done a great job. Our our health departments, our two in the state, have been doing really well, a good job in giving information and saleable um, sound bites, so to speak. And so you can follow the Nashua um, Public Health Department on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, um, and you can go on their website, and they have up-to-date information um, as it relates to what are the latest guidelines for um, exposure risks in certain situations. Um, so that would be my two go-to. Um, the aafp.org also has a, a, a great um, source of information for patients, too, um, and questions that can be answered um, by the national representatives of family physicians as well. So that's another vetted resource that our listeners can look into. Oh, great. So AAFP, that must be like American Academy or Association of Family Physicians, Dr. Ramos? You got it. That's right. The American Academy of Family Physicians. Um, and so the website for that is aafp.org um, and then cdc.gov, um, as well as looking onto the um, New Hampshire's local public health department websites, and they have up-to-date patient information. You can also sign up for their email updates, and you can get, um, you can get um, postings um, um, live. From, from your public health departments in the state. Wow, so Dr. Vupla, we've gotten a lot of iterations of this basic question that Io asks, you know, 
What does a family with mixed vaccination status do? If you could just pick maybe two measures, Dr. Vupala, to advise these families, um, what would those be? Yeah, so the first measure is the everyone, anyone who can be vaccinated should be vaccinated. Now, you know, we've discussed this a lot in this past hour that children are not the main transmitters of the virus or not effective. So the or, or not affected as severely. So the onus of really fighting this pandemic really rests on the shoulders of the adults and the uh, teenagers and young adults that can be vaccinated. So I cannot stress that enough that whoever can be vaccinated should be vaccinated because that provides a safety net for the younger age group that's not eligible right now. The other thing I would like to uh, mention is that if you are a mother who has a infant, I would recommend breastfeeding because um, you know there there is a protection that's offered when when uh, lactating mothers are vaccinated or if they have had a natural infection in terms of transmitting uh, or not transmitting but um, transferring antibodies that are uh, are protective to the um, infant or you know some some women breastfeed past one year of age so that is again a very important thing in terms of protecting our most youngest uh, population. Wow, Dr. Ramos, how about you? Again, to parents who are just wondering what they should do this summer with their sort of mixed vaccination status, what's the, the one or two best pieces of advice you would give them? Yeah, if, if I were to leave um, today and you get two pieces of advice, the first thing would be to take a deep breath and breathe. We've made it this far. Um, the, the second thing would be to, um, to really consider to get vaccinated um, and for your kids, um, the more that we can vaccinate, the easier and the hopefully the longer we'll be able to have um, a new sense of normalcy. Um, so those would be my two things. And I guess the third thing would be if you don't feel comfortable in certain situations, stay true to how you feel. Um, there is no right answer um, for it in every case is, is every individual case is um is, is different. And so um, be comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> wow. So is that speaking to, you know, Dr. Ramos, Matt, who wrote earlier and really wants to go see the grandparents for a month, but is uncomfortable with this unvaccinated uncle. It sounds like you're kind of saying respect that feeling, Matt. You know, there's, we, we are, um, we have to show ourselves grace, Laura, you know, and we are all trying to make sense of, of a situation and dynamics that have been turned upside down. And so um, there might be considerations that, um, that are not necessarily comfortable, um, but also understanding that we are in the midst of a pandemic and um, we should extend grace to ourselves and we should extend grace to one another. Um, I, I do also say that um, as far as matters of health equity, um, is concerned, that is still important to remember, particularly in New Hampshire. And so how are we going to get vaccines for our most vulnerable populations, as well as our ethnic um, populations that are um, that are not getting vaccinated as often as, um, as our um, white granite staters in the state? And so we still need to be proactive as a state to make sure that our most vulnerable populations are getting access to the vaccine and getting information in a way that they can understand.
Yeah, and I know that's something that you've been working on, um, Dr. Ramos, as uh, as a member of, you know, Healthcare Voices of New Hampshire and the Lighthouse NH, and we have links to that on our website as well on our show post. Uh, we always have lots of information there. I always, I really appreciate what you said too, Dr. Ramos, extending grace to others and to ourselves. I mean, it's a pandemic and everybody's trying to figure this out. So I appreciate that. Jennifer in North Conway writes with a very practical question. And I like this question. I'll throw it to you, Dr. Bupala. I'm wondering if children who do not get a vaccine, or maybe this applies to all non-vaxxers, Jennifer says, what happens down the road if and when there are enough variants that vaccine booster is made would the booster shot only work for folks with the earlier vaccine dose already injected? Good question, Jennifer. Go ahead, uh, Dr. Bupala, please. Yeah, so a couple of points regarding that. So will will we need her? And uh, we, we don't know at this point if um, we will need to have a booster vaccine and if we will need to have a new vaccine with uh, the more prevalent variant. Now, we know that as we suppress the current more dominant common strains of the of the virus with our current vaccination, there is a possibility that variants will emerge and we will have to create another vaccine. We do not know at this time if a booster will be needed. We know that after natural COVID infection, you know, again, not completely 100% we don't know this completely, but um, they're saying that there's a protection after natural infection. And Pfizer did a study looking at effectiveness up to six months, and they found the vaccine to be, again, very effective over 90%. So we know that there is a protection that's offered from both natural and as well as vaccination. We do not know for how long. But this concept of requiring a booster is not a new one. And, um, you know, parents especially should be familiar with this because we recommend the influenza vaccine annually. And again, the influenza virus has ability to change, change the, you know, change, there can be a change in the strains basically. And so we need to modify that vaccine on a yearly basis. We also know with other infectious disease, for example, pertussis, which causes whooping cough, initially we had a set vaccination schedule, but we found outbreaks occurring adolescents. So then we had to add a uh, pertussis vaccination at 11 to 12 years of age. So this is very much um, part of the process of figuring out which uh, which dosing schedule is the most effective and provides the most long-term protection. So it is, um, you know, it, it requires some patience and it is unfortunately not clear at this time, but again, it will be clear very soon. And wow, so yeah. be, you know, I think it's reasonable for parents to be prepared for a booster, but I don't think we'll be putting our, on that. Our focus right now should be on whoever is eligible and feeling about the protection that offers. Yeah, it's evolving, an evolving process as, uh, as your answer is showing us. Both of you, we ran out of time, but there's a lot more we could have talked about. I really appreciate you being with us. Dr. Bupala, thank you for your time. My pleasure, thank you. That's Dr. Sharon Bupala, pediatric infectious disease specialist and hospitalist in Nashua. And Dr. Ramos, thank you for being with us once again. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure, thank you.
That's Dr. Marie Elizabeth Ramos, family physician and activist, advisor for Healthcare Voices of New Hampshire. She also oversees the Lighthouse NH, which engages communities of color in public health and wellness. Today's show was produced by Exchange senior producer, Christina Phillips. Thanks everybody for being with us. This is The Exchange on New Hampshire Public Radio. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. Thanks.